At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This country was built on a distinctly American work ethic, but today, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries, and with that, we sent away good jobs and diminished our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make a variety of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more. All made right here in the USA, from growing the cotton and adding the final touches. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs for seamsters, cutters, and factory workers in towns and cities across the United States. And it's about more than an income. Jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. Welcome to the Bandwagon Podcast, and today my guest is a friend of the podcast, uh, Gurinder Singh Man. He's a leading Sikh historian for over 25 years and specialised in Sikh history and heritage in the UK and throughout the world. Um, he's an author of three books. Um, he's also devoted his his kind of his life at the moment into research uh, and especially around Sikh, uh, Sikh artifacts. Um, and he's been on, uh, and whoever goes onto this show is always gets the, the big respect straight away, which is BBC's Antiques Roadshow. So, Grinder, welcome to the podcast. Sasikal, nice to be on the show today. Thank you very much for the great intro. Well, just a quick correction. Four books. Four books. <laughs> yeah. What is your bio? <laughs> so you're gonna, you're gonna but, but what is interesting is the bio was with three and the new one, which makes it four. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's gonna happen now is um, I mean we'll get to the book in in a short while, but what I would say is like when we when we first did it was you know almost 18 months ago when we've done it from there. And in your and I've seen you really active on um on social media and going around to different places. So what I would say is then in the in the in the past 18 months, what's what's changed for you? Yeah, it's really interesting because I think if I'm right, we were right in the middle of the kind of the pandemic uh when mm. we actually spoke. And um even at that time it was a bit novel because we've been meaning to talk for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got back and forth on facebook yeah. friends for a very long time absolutely and so we managed to get that podcast done and um since that time i mean obviously spent a lot of time just uh, you know promoting the british and the Sikhs book which uh was received really really well not just in the uk but globally as well and then always the next step was at the end of finishing that book i was on course to do another book as well which we'll go into um i mean 
Also, um, I wanted to concentrate a lot more on the seat missiles as well. And again, questions you'll be asking about that later on as well. Yeah. So as a result of that, uh, I did go to India um, last year where I was able to pick up on some research which had started some years ago, but obviously due to the pandemic was not able to get to fruition. So the idea was to visit forts, avillies, old families related to the seat missiles going back to the 18th century mm-hmm. and just you know corroborating and getting new information about the seat missiles as well and thirdly not um, and, and another big project which I've been working on is uh, the unveiling or working towards a Sikh statue in Leicester as well which has also taken a number of years but it's coming up to fruition and hopefully Maharaj Girpa will be ready for installation in a couple of months time. Green, I just want to you, you just said something really interesting especially in terms of what the atmosphere is like in India and stuff so you went there how does your work in India get received? Well it's interesting because when I first came out with my um, dissertation my MA um, back in around 2000, I actually put my internet, I put my dissertation on the internet. Mm. Remember the internet was its infancy then. And interestingly, people in India actually got hold of it. And so from that time, I've had a great relationship with different individuals, whether it be people at universities, maybe it's Punjabi University Patiala, whether it's um, the lay person, whether it's uh, individual scholars, even, the main religious authorities as well in certain you know, denominations, where it's the Nahangs, Daksalo, uh, different denominations, I've always had a great relationship because, you know, I go with honesty. I I'm not here to play any games. I'm just here to do the gum. I'm here to do the seva. I'm here to do the research. And hopefully it comes out because, you know, when people from England go abroad and, you know, they're asking questions, asking this, you're going to have a purpose to your questions. There's one aspect which is always you're intriguing you're intrigued by history you're intrigued by the ways of the Sikhs you're intrigued by religion but then the second fold is where you're actually so devoted to your gum that the questions you ask are so hardcore if I may use that word Mm -hmm. that the person you're going to ask them to they won't just be surprised, they'll be wanting to help you because it's the questions they don't get asked. And that's the kind of thing that I've always done is to kind of ask the questions which, you know, some scholars don't understand or may want to delve into themselves. So I'm also like a scholar's scholar as well, which actually means a lot of scholars tap into me to just to know about various things because I am, because I have a lot of broad range of historical skills if that makes sense so I don't just cover one period I don't cover one person I cover the whole range going from the guru period you know missiles seat wars yeah. uh, period um, up to about 1900 so therefore when I go across to India and the Punjab the honesty is there and that's why I have this great relationship with people and there's a lot of people who help me as well and I think it's really important because the karma I do isn't even though it looks like a one banda job, it's not a one person job. You always, I'm always contacting people, emailing. What about this? What about this? I, in fact, I ask more questions than you're going to ask in this podcast today. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> no, I really, I really, I really appreciate in terms of what you, you know, what you've said, and and when when I'm going to go into the book very shortly, I'm, um, 
you know, the effort in terms of the, I think the accuracy is the word of where you try and become as accurate as possible when you when you do work is really good. And by the, the credibility of the questions you do, you already build that rapport straight away. Is that fair to say? No, absolutely. And, you know, I don't go with any kind of uh, pre-expectations. I don't actually go in with kind of, um, you know, with any attitude. I don't go in by thinking I know everything. I always go with the idea that I want to learn something. And that's what people don't do. They go in with the idea, I've got 80% of knowledge, I'll fill in that 20%. I go with the idea that, yes, I've got amount of knowledge, let's pick up some ideas from somebody else and let's see how it amalgamates with the ideas you have. So it's a symbiosis relationship that I always say, and it's not necessarily just with history, it's with when you meet people on the street as well, what's that relationship you would build with people? And people sometimes are very short-term thinking. The gamma I've been doing, like, like you said at the outset, is 25 years. So yeah. you've got to build up these relationships year after year after year. And you can't be breaking bridges, et cetera, and things like that, because you'll need to tap into people in the future. So it's really, really important that you have this kind of standard and a, and a compass as well, where, you know, you can, everyone can tap in with the research I've got. And it's reciprocal as well. One of the things that we did when we did the earlier uh, podcast and we, we spoke in, uh, in, in, in that episode, mm. it was really informative in terms of like how accurate you try to do, try to focus on. And, you, and you, you said at that point you had another three or four books in you already in terms of like planning of different angles of where you could go. So this book, um, which you just released, is uh, The Rise of the Sikh Soldier, The Sikh Warrior Through the Ages. Uh, ages in between 1700 and 1900 um this what was really interesting when i when i uh, um I, I was reading it there was a really particular different writing style in terms of what you were doing compared to some of the other books that you've done um and it felt almost personal and storytelling in, in one aspect at the same time, almost a bit like a novel in some ways, you know. Why was there a change of the style in terms of when you were writing this book? Each book, when you have at the outset, you've got to look at it from a different way. I mean, the so it does some grand question answers is totally different because it's 50 questions, 50 answers. So it's a different way of writing. The Oxford book on the Dasam Granth was academic. So that's really heavily in terms of facts, figures, et cetera. Not to say this book isn't, but that was really in depth. Um, the British and the Sikhs was totally different because that's like giving you snippets of when the British and the Sikhs met together and the relationship they had. With the rise of the Sikh soldier, I wanted to tackle individuals, which um, I've said this on a couple of other podcasts as well, that we think we know the history behind these characters. So whether it's just a Alawalia, whether it's the female warriors, whether it's uh, Serko, whether it's um, Maharaja Ranjit Singh. But I really wanted to actually give a kind of chronological order to how they lived, but back it up with some great facts and figures, which you don't normally hear about if that makes sense. Yeah. So that's why when you say it sounds almost like a novel, it is novel because the information is novel. Yes. So I think I can probably justify that way. And, and again, it's almost like um, expanding on the British and the Sikhs book because it's actually going into depth on certain individuals, like I mentioned, certain characters, 
but then it's backed up with a lot of footnotes as I always do anyway. But then at the end, I've got the appendices. I've got some great kind of um, appendices and, and, and I'll cite the example, um, you know, of a letter from the King of England, for instance, and it's in relationship with, uh, uh, with Maharaja Ranjit Singh. So, you know, things like that, which you don't normally ever hear of, if that makes sense. So it's like, um, give the reader something that they've never read never understood, may not come across ever. So I've always tried to go down that route in terms of actually providing that information, those facts and figures, which aren't readily available. Um, I'm just going to ask you one final question in terms of kind of um, the structure and, and organization, organizing the book. Was it really, did you find it a lot easier to write in this style compared to some of the other books that you've written? Um, I think every book's a challenge. Um, I don't think one book is easier than another because at the end of the day, um, it's information. Um, and information, if you don't have it, that means you've got to research it. I mean, mm. sometimes I have a lot of the information already, if that makes sense, because I've been researching for 25 years and that's why I have a big advantage in which... How, I, how do you file then? How do you file some of that information? And some of it doesn't get... It gets lost. <laughs> and... And it's and it's really interesting because even uh, like last week or the other day, I'm looking for something, I can't find it, but then I find something else, which is even greater than what I've actually yeah. lost. Yeah. So there's always gems in terms of what I've always collected. And I think the key thing is, even if there's information I've come across, I always try and keep it because I may need it for next year, the year after, or you know, a couple of years later. And that's why, you know, which you touched on is that um i've got material for several books if that makes sense and the reason for that is because i'm a researcher first mm. and then i sit down and i can plan the book and write it in a way i want to so i think the difficulty level is that all books are difficult to write there's no easy book you can ever write even if you had 100 pages 200 pages written in the past you still got to go back to them to make sure it's relevant to this particular time so um yeah it's just more a case of actually just always being focused whilst you're preparing the book really so your your, your journey in, into research we already went when uh, sort of discussed it before but you, you, do you feel has the passion changed Ooh, that's a tough question um I, I yeah when you've been working in this area for so long you do, will have those little dips where you know you have little breaks and stuff but i'll be honest with you uh, generally i've always been on it I think most people know that. Mm. Always on it, if that makes sense. And it's almost like um, if I'm away from the research for a week or two, something is dragging me back and saying, you've got to get back on this case. Because I've always felt, and it's not being um, pompous, it's not being about blowing your own trumpet. I've always felt that we don't have many scholars on this planet who are actually providing the information, the history, which uh, we need to tell not just people who are our own age. Uh, I mean, obviously we're living here in Britain, you know, we've got several generations here, but the children that are gonna come after us and, and the ones that couldn't come after them as well. So the problem with some scholars is that it's, their information is not palatable. It's not available easily. It's not available to read easily. And I always felt that, you know, if no one else is going to do it, I'm going to have to do it. I feel that I have to do it. There's just something which has always said to me um, that, you know, you've just got to go on with this um, pursuit 
partly knowledge, but pursuit to provide information for people around the world. And I think um, people are grateful for it as well, because there's, there's sometimes when you do things and you're not appreciated for it, but then there's all, you know, but there's always times that when, you know, you, and remember this is a global thing as well. It's not like, you know, I walk down the street and someone says, oh, great, you've written a book, thanks very much. And like you've said, I can go anywhere in the world and, you know, and I hopefully I get the respect and I hopefully get the uh, kudos for doing the work for this amount of years as well. The period that you're covering between 1700 and 1900 is often described, I'm going to just ask it, ask this from a macro level um, answer, as kind of in a golden age of the, the Sikh empire. Um, what were some of the key things that you you uh, you found out in that period, and why do they uh, why do they call it the golden age of the Sikh Empire? Well, seventeen. Well, I might want to correct you a little bit there. So, seventeen hundred to nineteen hundred wouldn't be the kind of the golden empire because mm. the seventeen in the seventeen hundred period we have Guru Gobind Singh Ji, and he's. Um, in his final years, if we can say that, and he's being persecuted by the Mughals, and therefore, you know, we lead on to the Banda Bahadur uh, period, and then we get into the missiles. The golden period in Sikh history has always been known as the Sikh Empire period, which is roughly 1800s, 1839. That's been really considered the golden period, but um, history also puts the Sikhs on different pedestals as well. So you can actually compare each period. And yes, every period has its golden time within that period. Yes. That makes sense. So technically you're right. Yeah. But I think, but from a public point of view, people always look at Ranjit Singh's period as the golden period. I may kind of disagree with that slightly because the fact that the missile period is underrated, if that makes sense. Um, there's not been a lot of research done on the Sikh missiles uh, particularly. And as a result, we only have certain names who pop up, if that makes sense. So we, we talk about the bravery of Baba Deep Singh, for instance. We may talk about Jassar Singh Alawalia, we may talk about Bagheel Singh as well, and Jassar Singh Ramgarhia and others. But apart from these um, individuals, the kind of story kind of stops and then it's like there's nothing else if that makes sense there's nothing which then allows people to say well how do i read more about this or how does this all fit in whereas if we look at the sikh empire period under one leader one ruler there's stability there's governance there's you know the issuing of coins it's a prosperous state Punjab becomes a really prosperous state but that doesn't mean the state before it wasn't prosperous it was just different it was just different and then you know the Punjab was always prosperous even during the British period as well the Punjab still gains its um, prosperity um, in terms of infrastructure and things like that as well so I think it really depends on the reader what you call the golden period but but quite rightly, the reason for choosing this period, 1700-1900, was it kind of gives you that development from the time of the Gurus to the actual time period of when colonialization kind of hits, really, or the time period of just before you get to the World War I period, essentially. So then, like, 
again, like you're talking from uh, from a macro and then jumping in into a into a micro. The, the seek missile area is, is is very very interesting, and but you focus you you can focus on let's say a couple of characters within 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 the book. Um, Jarrett Singh, you just mentioned Jassar Singh Alwalia. Um, why did you kind of choose those uh, Khalsa chiefs in particular? Well, in the British and the Sikhs, um, I kind of opened up the uh, opened up the Pandora's box at that particular point in terms of actually kind of concentrating on Bagheel Singh, just to kind of let people know in terms of the conquest in Delhi, 1783. I had Bagheel Singh on the cover, and it was kind of like um, stay saying this time round, let's make it a bit more kind of. Um, let's give that historical narration as to who were the key characters in the missile period. I didn't concentrate on Bagheel Singh, like I said, I'd already covered him. Uh, just as in Ramgaria, I was, was a consideration, but I wanted to consider two kind of main thoughts which lead up to the Sikh Empire. So just as in Aluwalia was given the mantle by Nawab Kapoor Singh. So we had Bunda Singh Bahadur, leading to Nawab Kapoor Singh, but then Nawab Kapoor Singh gives the gaddi to Jassa Singh Aliwalia. So he's um, the head of the Buddha Dal Dharnadal for around 40 years. So it's a pivotal part of Sikh history in the missile period. So he was chosen for that reason. Jarat Singh uh, was chosen because he's the grandfather of Ranjit Singh. So before we get Ranjit Singh and we get the Sikh empire, how did his missile develop and how did it help Ranjit Singh become who he became, if that makes sense. So there was those kind of aspects which made me choose specifically about the male characters. The female characters are slightly different because they're looking at different aspects of their kind of missiles. So when we talk about Seb Gore, for instance, that's uh, talking about something different. And Sadako, her qualities are looked at in a different way. Um, from the male counterparts as well. So I think that was the reason for choosing these specific individuals. Could you tell us uh, any some of the anecdotes that you found for, for those, two, uh, those two that you just mentioned? Uh, the women or the men? Or oh, well, we could, we'll get to um, um, Seb Gaur and uh, Sadda Gaur okay. shortly, but yeah. uh, especially for Jarrett Singh and Justice Singh Alawalia. Yeah, I think with just us in Aluwalia, we have this kind of individual who has had to go through a lot. So you see the rise, well, we see the demise of the Guru period, you see the demise of Bandar Singh Bahadur, but then you have an individual called Nawab Kapoor Singh who takes him under his leadership, I'm sorry, under his wing, should I say, in order to make him a leader in the future. So he learns quite a lot from Nawab Kapoor Singh, but he also learned a lot while staying with the Matas in Delhi as well. So he learned a lot of languages he would have learned. Whilst he was still young, he would have learned a little bit about court politics whilst he was in Delhi as well. And that would lead to later on because remember, he was the instigator of the attack in 1783 with Bagheel Singh uh, in conquering Delhi in 1783, but yet he was actually brought up in Delhi. So there's got to be something in it to actually say about why this individual was brought up to hold the mantle for the Sikhs. Why was he kind of chosen? And Nawab Kapoor Singh chose a great individual like Jassar Singh Alawala because he saw the great qualities in him. And these qualities were actually shown um, not, not always on the battlefield, but he was a very devout and you know, very religious Khalsa. 
he uh, brought lots of people into the Sikh, um, Sikh faith as well. But interestingly, he was there between the, in, during the two great massacres on the Sikhs, which is the Shota Gulagara and the Vada Gulagara. And the problem here is that if you've made it through both of them, you know, I mean, I mean, he he had his own kind of scars as well to show it as well. So it was partly to kind of show that he had to lead the Sikhs during those rough periods, even though Nawab Kapoor Singh was in charge during the um, Shota Gulagara. But, you know, it was also trying to make sure that the missiles were united as best as possible as well. So in 1764, uh, I've got the date right, um, when they take over Sahind province, he has to kind of partition the Punjab and he has to give territories out to other people. And whether they liked it or not, that is what happened at that time. So it's interesting because people actually had to listen to him, but the Tarnadal, who were the younger Sikhs, you know, like the Sukhachakya missile, the Bungi missile, and some others as well, um, there was always tension between the missiles, but whilst uh, just as saying Alwali was around, he tried to unite them as best as possible. It wasn't always successful, but the key thing was when it came to a common enemy, so when the forces of um, Abdali came, and before that Nadir Shah, you know, the Sikhs were always together because the common threat, but then in peace times, there was always that, some inter-missile rivalry. But I think the key component of Justice Singh Aliwalia was also to make sure Amritsar was as strong as possible and was still a center of faith, devotion, clearing uh, the, the place of the Mughals, clearing the place of the Afghans, if you can say that, and then making it a central place of, uh, of devotion so all Sangat could go back to actually start, um, you know, listening to the Guru Granth Sahib, the Harmandir Sahib, and you know, just making sure that the stability was there in the Punjab. So that was a very, very key component of what he was trying to achieve. Um, in and, and the greatest uh, successes he had was, um, you know, making sure that um, the Khalsa forces, as part of the Bungis and the Sukhachakyas, fought the Afghans on one side of the border of greater Punjab and then you had the force of Bagheel Singh um, and the Nishanwali missile and some others who were going towards Delhi so it was a huge responsibility for Jassa Singh Aluwala to be involved in conflicts which spanned all across the Punjab so and I think he did that really eloquently as well even though there was like I said um, there was some kind of intermissile um, kind of problems that did occur but not to the level which actually kind of spoilt the kind of whole kind of historical journey that the Sikhs needed to take. So I think um, in history, he is judged as being a fair leader and someone of principle. And I think that's what the Gurus wanted our Khalsa to be. And that's what Jassar Singh Aluwalia did become as part of that journey for him. And what was interesting is, is like how you balance this up and, and you just met just before I asked you the other question, you know, you, 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 um, shone through the, uh, some of the female voices within uh, within these stories and and the and the chapters there's there's a um, you know 12 chapters within that and and you and it's a very golden thread that's been put through it so you know how important were the, were um like Seb Gore and, and Sada Gore in 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 doing w within this book and and getting some of their stories out yeah i think i've always felt that um 
And, and it's not like this novel thing, oh, let's get a few women voices in there, let's become popular. I've always felt that, um, that their story has always been missing because when you're doing research and these names are popping up, why aren't they being included in books? I've always felt that, that you know, there's always like a little footnote here, a little side note here, or, you know, and, you know, we're, most male writers have been guilty of it. And it's really been, I was fortunate this time to actually say, well, no, I'm going to actually, you know, focus on individuals like Seb Gord because he, she was maybe not known to many people. And, you know, uh, she came from the area of Patiala. And, you know, Patiala sometimes gets a bad name when it comes to Sikh history as well. But I wanted to actually shine a good light on Patiala in terms of what she was trying to create and trying to show how she was bigger than her brother, Seb Singh, um, who was, you know, maybe not politically astute as she was. And she was also a military leader and she fought against the Marathas um, successfully. And then she eventually even fought against um, a British named uh, George Thomas. Um, but, you know, her power was great and she was considered the prime minister of um, Patiala, like I've mentioned. But then she fell uh, foul of her brother's jealousy or her, his instigations. And in the end, it was the British, the same British she'd been fighting against called George Thomas, who actually came to rescue her as well. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, these, it's, it's these insights into history which fascinate me all the time. And then when we talk about Sadakor as well, when we talk about Maharaja Ranjit Singh's success, we cannot talk in the same breath of Maharaja Ranjit Singh's success without talking about Sadakor and the grounding that she gave to Ranjit Singh so then, then he could climb up that ladder to become Maharaja. It just would not have happened because the first attack, you know, on Lahore, um, he needed the forces of Sadakor and the Kanaya missile, which they gave and they provided, and that counsel that was given to him, and that got him Lahore, and then eventually all these other smaller battles, and then eventually leading up to his time to become the Maharaja of Punjab. So these were very, very little individuals who are just there in the background. These were strong female characters who held their own and were able to actually influence, but both of them actually did fall foul of male individuals in the end. So it's it's one of those stories that needed to be told. Um I just want to ask you a personal question and then and, and then go on to a question around uh, Maharaja Ranjit. When you're doing the research and you're going and, and you're going into kind of quite a lot of heavy content, how do you balance your own emotion to kind of stay, you know, because I, when I'm hearing some of these stories and when I was reading some of it, it really brings up, you know, a, you know, sense of pride, anger. I'm feeling all these things at the same time. How do you control your emotion? Uh, it, it, that, that's another good question, actually. You're getting, you're getting me with the questions today. Um <laughs> I think I've always tried to have that balance when I, I mean, I worked on the hardest subject you can ever do in Sikh history and that was the Dasam Granth. And then everything else after that is easy because the Dasam Granth was a, that's what you call emotions. When you had people um, casting their kind of illogical thoughts on Guru Gobind Singh's Bani and then you trying to be neutral was very, very difficult because you want to really promote the Bani of Guru Gobind Singh. So that was, that was the moment, 
the time when it was very emotional in terms of trying to keep balance. Um, during the writing of these books, I've always find the honesty is important because you can't be straying and actually kind of saying everything's good and everything's bad. You still got to have that balance with, even with, uh, like you said, you're going to be able to talk about Ranjit Singh. We have to talk about his great characteristics, but we can also talk about his flaws as well because none of these individuals were always absolutely perfect. So we have to talk about it because the lessons that we learn from people's flaws are the ones and the things that we need to take away with us. So hopefully we can learn, hopefully our leaders can learn from these mistakes as well. So the idea about keeping balanced is, and being not being swayed by emotion, is by letting the reader becoming mm. emotional and not me. Yeah. I try to stay away from it. I, I mean, I may have my personal opinion sometimes, even after writing the book and thinking, maybe I should have wrote this <laughs> much about this individual of what they've done. But, but I, I like to be fair as well. I like to be fair because, look, people are going to come after me as well. When I mean come after me, I mean people are going to be writing after me as well. They may read my books. And, you know, it's important not to sway too many people towards a certain conclusion because people need to think for themselves as well. And when it comes to writers that will come after me, they need to have enough information at their fingertips to actually make that judgment to say what I'd written um, is fair and balanced as well. So can you see where I'm coming from? It's Yeah, yeah. It, no, I, mean, yeah. I think because it, you're a custo we're a custodian of time, isn't we? And we're a custodian of, of material and research. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, we, we always stand in on the shoulder of giants, whatever we're doing. And then, you know, you're making the platform there without swaying and, and having the editor's eye of doing it. But I think because we've got a personal interest within this and it's a vested emotion, you know, having that challenge of trying to balance of not stoking one one fire compared to the other, you know, it, you know that also becomes a science in itself. Absolutely. No, no, I agree with you on that. Uh, it, it, is, it is a juggling act, literally, when we talk about balance. It is a juggling act when it comes to facts, figures, information and um but the interesting thing is Ranjit is this I get a lot of information and I've had like um certain you know you get it on social media you get it on within books as well people just don't have that information so even if they want to back up an argument they even they can only point to one source if you're going to back up an argument at least have 10 sources for your argument yeah. most people won't have that because they don't go into that kind of depth nor do I expect people to go to that depth because you, then you're going really down that way to prove something. But you, for me, I've got it readily available because that's the kind of level I go into when you're kind of trying to prove an argument. It's not just one citation. Sometimes I might have two or three. I may have some which I'm not even put in the book, but they're all there. So, you know, if you're going to be challenged on something, then... You know, you yeah, know. And, I, and I think it's a really good, you know, especially with how you go on other podcasts and you and you do that. And, you know, the great work that um, I was doing on the Ramblings of a Seat podcast. And, yeah. you know, you see individuals like that. It gives you reassurance that, you know, there's other people picking up the baton or going a different direction and becoming that source. You know, very valuable, very valuable. So Maharaja Ranjit Singh, when you when, when you you've just mentioned it. What was a young Maharaja Ranjit Singh like, especially in the formative years? Because you've, you you were talking around um, with Jasa Singh Aliwali going and having the the court experience and having that kind of played into into that historical lineage at that point. What was a young Maharaja Ranjit Singh like? 
Yeah, I don't think it was the same as what Jasasin Aluwalia had, because Jasasin Aluwalia was actually taught the arts, uh, he was taught languages. Ranjit Singh was not as educated, if that makes sense. So he was had limited education, but um, he did like the warrior arts. Um, so therefore he took to kind of learning about the martial arts and horse riding and you know archery and other things as well. But he took to that very, very good. I mean, obviously Mah Singh, who was his father, um, so Ranjit Singh's father Mah Singh died um, when, when he was at a younger age as well. So he was kind of led um, through his formative years by his mother. And then when he did get married by his mother-in-law, Sadako. So um, with having these strong female uh, personalities, which guided him as well. But interestingly, the Sakajakia missile had a number of individuals and generals who he could look up to as well. So when he does get the Gaddi of the Sakajakia missile, there's other people who were, who were actually with Maha Singh may have had leadership qualities which were displayed by Jarat Singh, if that makes sense. So some of what we call them is Kardars, which are governors. So the governors around, you know, um, in modern day Pakistan, which the Sokajakia missile actually kind of um, had command over, he had access to all of those. It wasn't the case that when we go from Jarat Singh to Maha Singh to Ranjit Singh, all these people are gone. I mean, obviously people like the Bungis, and the others might have tried and have taken all these individuals away from this missile. But interestingly, the reverse happened. The Sakachakia missile actually took the governors from the Bungi missile and um, uh, the others as well. And it was really the, to their credit that they were not necessarily the biggest missile. They weren't necessarily the strongest missile either, but they just played uh, the political game very, very well. And that led to Maharaja Ranjit Singh in good stead. So he was learning as he was growing up. And then, you know, so leading up to his Maharaja ship, um, he had all those skills because he was learning at a very, very young age and he's picking things up very, very rapidly. So even though he didn't have the education um, that maybe some military leaders had, he had this eye for detail and picking up things just by watching as well, which is also an important trait. So on the on the journey of Maharaja Ranjit's ascension upwards, what was the culture and the mil the military kind of um, tactics or uh, um, strategies being used at the time before he before he comes on the throne? Yeah, it's, it's that that's a really good question because um, in the 18th century, um, the main pursuit, the main way of um, undertaking military operations was cavalry. So you jump on your gore, you've got um, a couple of weapons and then, then you're off. That's why, you know, uh, the Singh and his gora um, was the, the mainstay of their kind of uh, military life. So artillery was very non-existent. There was artillery in terms of guns. I mean, the Sakajakia missile had already got the Zamzama gun, which is the most famous gun. They'd kind of wrestled it between the Bungies and them several times. Um, and then he wrestled it back off the Bungies when he became Maharaja. But I think what Maharaja Ranjit Singh learned between, I think it's most crucially around, literally uh, as soon as he'd taken over Amritsar around 1801, is that he realised that um, his military strength 
needed to be improved. So he already, he knew about the cavalry tactics, but he had started seeing, or started getting um, information about the British, for instance. He'd found out about what the French were doing. And then when he did meet the British, when he saw the British for the first time, he thought, look at these disciplined soldiers. These soldiers are very, very disciplined. They have a certain way they're behaving. My soldiers aren't doing this. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, it was a question I was going to ask, but and you kind of answered it. You know, the, the world intelligence at the time. You know, I'll, uh, I'll be listening to some of the Comanche stuff, and you hear right, right. how at Parker, our purpose is simple: we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation. And partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com/purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Where, where he went from that journey from going to horse, getting, getting into, well, ultimately kind of like disease, really, and then, um, but militarizing themselves. And then, you just mentioned the British and the French then. So how was he kind of collating that, that intelligence? Are you aware of that journey of intelligence to him? Well, well, the interesting aspect is um, if you look at my British and the Sikhs book, I kind of mentioned that anyway, because the missiles were already um, in communication with the British from the 17... Um, well, the first time the Sikhs uh, probably got in contact was around just after 1764 anyway. It was the first, there was the first skirmish, maybe slightly later with the British, but it was only a skirmish across the River Ganges. So they knew about the British anyway, and, this, and the British and Sikh uh, kind of relationship kind of developed from around the 1780s onward when Bagheel Singh had entered Delhi and the British knew more about the Sikhs. So Ranjit Singh had always known about the East India Company. It wasn't like it was something new. So Whenever people in the cis subtlet states, okay, so the areas, you know, like we just talked about, Patiala, Napa, all these areas, they would come to visit uh, Maharaja Ranjit Singh. They would come and pay their respects. So he would always be getting these intelligence reports. And remember, he was doing trade as well across India as well. So merchants, traders were coming in and they would tell stories about what was happening in other parts of India as well. So the other key thing, which is slightly going backward a little bit, but in Delhi, there used to always be a vakils of all the missiles. So the missiles always had uh, vakils, which is, so just think of it like, you know, kings and queens, even of, of yesteryear in here as well, you would have an envoy. The missiles used to have an envoy in Delhi, even though the Mughals were fighting against the Sikhs, the Marathas, the Rohilas, the East India Company, but they still had envoys in Delhi, which meant everyone knew what was going on. But with the British taking over Delhi in around 18, you know, 18, oh, between 1801, 1803, that period, then those envoys kind of dissipated. But that didn't mean the information flows didn't carry on either. 
So military information was always passed on. Uh, traders were given that information. And then the Khalsa themselves, when they were kind of, I mean, the last battles that they had in the Cisutlid states was around 1803 that the Sikhs had with the British. So remember this well before Ranjit Singh gets involved, well before the Anglo-Sikh Wars, the Sikhs from the Cisutlid states were fighting against the British, but only in a minor way at that particular time. And then the British completely shut off that border where the Sikhs could actually raid into Delhi when they took over, when, when the British took over Delhi. But that information will always get passed on to Ranjit Singh. So, yeah. And so the, the, the main sort of, what was the main thing that he's then changed? Because it's it's very easy to say, right, okay, we're going to go militarise our our army. He's obviously recognised straight away that there's, there's a discipline issue that needs to be sorted. But then how do you source arms? How do you then militarise? How do you change people's way of, uh, especially the, his his generals as well at the at the time to change their tactics and learn a new skill? Well, it didn't happen just like overnight. It wasn't like in a couple of years it happened. It took about 10, 15, 20, 30 years and the development comes in different phases. So he'd already started to uh, get the infantry, try to uh, recruit infantry because he knew his forts needed to be guarded. So you need infantry. He realized that if he's going to attack certain places or when he went to attack Multan, he took the Zanzama gun with him. Um, he actually broke down during that time. But then he realized that he needs more, more artillery. So therefore, he needs more people to actually for siege warfare, if that makes sense. So but also, remember, he'd subdued a lot of the missiles. So he had to absorb the missiles into his system. He employed the Akali Nahangs, okay, who were ordering to themselves anyway. But then what he did was cleverly was he actually increased the pay rates for the uh, areas which he wanted the most individuals. So he'd pay the infantry and the artillery more because he needed more numbers in that area. And interestingly, when we talk about artillery, the main people who were part of the artillery was Muslims, not Sikhs to begin with. So therefore yeah. the main chiefs and the main gunners were Muslims. And then they would train the other Sikhs to become efficient in the artillery aspect. The infantry was initially um, imposed of, you know, deserters from the East India Company, Gurkhas, uh, people from Hindustan who just needed employment. Then over time, Sikhs took over infantry as well. But I think the biggest um, impact was by having the Europeans come in. So that was the biggest impact when we start getting uh, General Allard, Ventura, Abu Dhabi, General Court, because what they brought into the mix was these European tactics. Uh, although he'd already been building some of these up anyway, because like I said, we'd heard about the intelligence, but then the Europeans had also brought in the European discipline ways of improving the infantry, the artillery. But then also you talked about um, sourcing arms and armor. Interestingly, General Allard, um, you know, he talks to King uh, Philippe um, the first or, or one, I think it is, and he actually gets, oh, he brings arms and armor all the way from France. So he brings guns, he brings um, armor from um, from France. So therefore, it eventually becomes known throughout Punjab, the Middle East, then eventually the world that there's a place where well, there's a person called Maharaj Ranjit Singh. He is on the lookout for individuals and army individuals of great repute. So therefore, lots of people started flocking into the Punjab 
especially through Europe, they went through Asia, they went through Iran, they'd stop off there, sometimes there'd be mercenaries there, and then they would get to the Punjab. Because the British had actually blocked off anyone going to the Punjab from the River Sutlej. So they'd always have to come across. So um, once the word had gone out, that's why you find over 60, 65 individuals, uh, Europeans who had actually were part of the Sikh empire. So these Ferengis or foreigners, as we call it, or what they used to call them, became very pivotal for the Sikh empire. And you've got to remember, there's no love lost between employing people like the French and the Italians because they didn't like the British either. So, you know, by providing those aspects, which um, he needed, was very, very pivotal to improving his infantry and artillery, then making a complete military system, which um, no power possibly during that time was as formidable as, as his. It, it sounds like the early, it's like a cosmopolitan kind of army, but a, a, a kind of embryonic state of the UN. You know, with people from different different backgrounds. I think if we transported back into time, we'd be shocked in terms of what we would see. I mean, we talk about the Punjab, we talk about how it's a religious place. But interestingly, you would notice the cosmopolitan aspect at that particular time. There would be people from all around the world there. And you'd be thinking, well, where do these people come from? And it's like, you know, in fact, you don't have those numbers now as what you had then in terms of foreigners coming in because there it was quite visible because you know um, the numbers of the Punjab would be a lot less so it's quite visible as to who's around but that cosmopolitan nature uh, was very fluid as well so there's people coming there's people going so there's always changes in terms of who the individuals were and remember it's not just a military thing as well it's people from the East India Company that were coming in and having kind of relations with the British, you know, finding out what uh, Ranjit Singh's about. You'd have artists come in, you'd have illustrators, you've had people writing novels, books. So there's a lot of people traveling through the Punjab um, during that Sikh Empire period. So, you know, we discussed it off air and uh, as well slightly, but the, the, the book itself, you discuss... Hari Singh Nalwa and Akali Fulla Singh. Um, what was the main reasons that you included those two individuals especially? I think um, when we talk about Sikh history, 1800 onwards, you hear both those names in the same breath sometimes. But what you don't hear is what they were really about. Now, if you're more geared towards Hari Singh Nalwa, you may know about those stories. If you're more geared towards Akali Fula Singh, you may hear and know about those stories. So what I wanted to do was, especially with Hari Singh Nalwa, was to actually talk about his military conquests and his governorship as well. Now, that's another important part of the, these generals. So we talk about the European generals, we talk about the Sikh generals. They weren't just military leaders, but they had to govern areas as well. That's a really important point, they had to govern aspects of land and then he had to write um, you know they had to actually send information to Maharaja Ranjit Singh in terms of payments um, profit surplus you know grain stocks and things like that so it wasn't just all about fighting it was also about administrative duties as well <laughs> and as boring as it sounds but that was something they had to do it was non-negotiable you can't just be a military leader you had to be part of governorship, which, which is, that's the reason why Punjab was so strong, because the military leaders had to prove themselves in other areas as well. 
And one individual like Hari Singh Nawal was great because he was able to kind of conquer and govern these areas around Pakistan, leading all the way up to Peshawar and up to the Atak. And those areas were very troublesome areas for Maharaja Ranjit Singh. But Hari Singh Nawal created forts around those areas. Um, he tried to be as humane as possible where he could, but if there was rebellions, he would fight back. I mean, you know, you've got to remember that Maharaja Ranjit Singh and Hari Singh Nalwa and the Khalsa blocked off the Afghan route, essentially. Mm. They blocked it off for the first time since the invader had ever come into India. They'd actually closed the border off, essentially, which meant there would be no more kind of um, incursions into India because... India had been looted so many times by invaders. You know, we talked about Nadir Shah, Nadir Shah and we talk about Abdali as well. They used to ransack, loot India blindly, where you know there's nothing left in the country in terms of riches. So for the first time since invaders had actually come to the sword of Hindustan, Maharaja Ranjit Singh and Hari Singh Nalwa were pivotal in ensuring that our border was closed off. And that's a major, major achievement, which is what I really wanted to kind of pay homage to, but also the qualities of Arasim Nalwa, his diplomatic skills as well. And again, he used to meet British leaders as well, uh, generals of the East India Company. And Ranjit Singh used to look up to him because he knew he was one of those finer generals in which he could conduct himself in. On the converse of that, we have Akali Fula Singh, who would never be sent to meet a British general because he's <laughs> anti-Ferengi. No, sorry, he's he was just anti yeah, anti-Ferengi, he's anti-British. So this time around with Akali Fula Singh, I wanted to pay more attention to how one individual could do anything and no one could stop him. And it, and it centres on a skirmish with Captain White in Naba. And at that particular time... Um, it was kind of, you know, those areas which the British were kind of administrating, administering, if I can say that. And then what happened was he goes and slaughters the camp of Captain White and the East India Company get really, really upset. And they say, well, we want this individual. We want this robber, you know, this uh, plunderer. We want this individual. We want him in chains. The problem is who's going to arrest Akali Fulasin? It's not going to happen. <laughs> People in Naba are like thinking, oh yeah, they're paying lip service to the East India Company. Yeah, we'll we'll do what we can. And then he goes to Anandpur, I think it is, and then he he goes, and then in the Punjab, he lays low a little bit. But you know, Ranjit Singh said, yeah, we'll try and do something. But if Ranjit Singh tried to do anything, it would have been worse than what the East India Company were going to do because the Punjab would have turned on Ranjit Singh if he'd even done anything with regards to the Kalifullah Singh. Because you've got to remember the Kalifullah Singh, he's not just a military leader, but he's the reli main religious leader. He's the head of the Buddha Dal and he's the, you know, the chief custodian of the Akata. So there's no one who can actually do anything. So I want you to focus on, and, you know, I mean, I could put it in inverted commas, him being a badass, but it's not about that. It's more about saying he has those qualities of the spiritual and the martial, which is what a castle is supposed to be. Sansa by action. The Absolutely. And that is why he was the cornerstone of the Khalsa, even during 
the time of Maharaja Ranjit Singh. Yeah, because I I I um I listened to it and I read that that part of it, and um because obviously with my name being Ranjit as well, it's it's very and I always <laughs> I always think of he was the one to keep the people in checks and balances to be accountable. And was that and he and he and he did keep uh, Maharaja Ranjit Singh accountable, didn't he? No, absolutely. I mean, he tried to keep because you had these kind of various voices. We just talked about how cosmopolitan the actual uh, Punjab was, but all his court was cosmopolitan as well. We talked about the Europeans. Um, there was the Dogras as well, so he's being he heavily influenced by Raja Gulab Singh. Um, you've got the Dogras, um, and you've got various other individuals. Um, I don't like to talk about the romanticised stories, but the key point to bear in mind is that um, Akali Fula Singh would do things on his own will and own whim, if that makes sense. So he didn't necessarily need to have Maharaj Ranjit Singh's um, backing to go and have an operation. So sometimes when the Khalsa forces may be under Nanhal Singh or you know the other princes, they would go out there and then that people would be saying, let's wait for Kalifula, uh, sorry, let's wait for the other forces to come. By that time, Kalifula Singh was already in the battlefield. So he would always lead from the front. I mean, in his Shahidi as well, he was leading at the front. And sometimes you may say that's a kamikaze way of dealing with um, the enemy. But that was always the Nahang way of life. That was the that was the thing which won us battles in the 18th century. So he was always doing things which he'd always learned from his forefathers. So that was the only warfare and style he knew. Whereas the others that we talked about, they developed a different military strategy for better or for worse. But I think the key thing about it is that Maharaja Ranjit Singh got the best out of everybody. And that's what his genius was by tapping into everyone's strengths, essentially. Do you feel that if um, uh, Hari Singh Nalo and Akali Fula Singh um, had, um, you know, survived and been there a little bit longer, that they would have the the kind of the ending of the the Sikh Empire would have been completely different? I know that's a, very, a bit of an unfair kind of question, um, but just from your opinions, from having a look at and what you've researched, what kind of educated guess would you would you have gone yeah. for? To be fair, I've never really thought about it that much. And there's reasons for why I don't think too much because, um, you know, you talk about the death of um, Akali Fula Singh first and then Hari Singh Nalwa um, a bit later on. And How many years difference was it between the two? I think it was about 10, 10, 15 years, I think, something like that. But I think the key thing is that... Um, they'd already kind of made pivotal strides into how the Sikh Empire should work. I mean, we talked about Hari Singh Nalwa's governorship, and then we talked about Gali Fula Singh's religious ideals, if that makes sense. And they were very, very strong still, even after Maharaja Ranjit Singh. Um, so, but the problem was is that, um, there was two, well, two things. You talk about the Sikh Empire and and it's collapsed, but then we've got the Anglo-Sikh Wars as well. So there's two different things. You've got that period between 1839 and 1845. That was six years where we had time to have our, get our house in order. Um, there was The interesting thing is there were some people who didn't want to have a war with the British, but then there's parts of the court we did want war with the British. That's interesting because the status quo could have been carried on. 
because if you look at Qarak um, Singh, Sheer Singh, they were kind of willing just to keep on the status quo with the British because there's no reason for them at this particular time to go to war with the British. The instigation came all within the court when they were, you know, well, the court went into disarray, everyone's killing each other, the army's getting now just gone powerful themselves. And the, the British are instigating it a little bit as well. It's not uh, just a Sikh thing. The British are instigating it. They're capturing more areas around the Punjab of and the territories of Ranjit Singh. There's a lot going on in terms of they're preparing boats and things as well. They're annexing a few of the territories. And there's individuals who are taunting uh, the Sikhs as well. So there's like uh, people like um, Broadfoot, who's an um, administrator, and he's kind of making, proclaiming certain things in the Punjab. So you're still getting all these things going on. But we didn't have that leader at that time who could actually say, well, is it the right thing to go to war with the British at this particular time? Now, we talk about this yin and yang almost between Harris Nalwa and Akali Fula Singh. I mean, Akali Fula Singh would have been straight in there to fight against the British <laughs> because the Nangs were there under Akali Hanuman Singh. But I think we needed someone to steady the ship. And with people like maybe more Harris Nalwa would have been a person who would have been able to steady the ship more and would have led to more respect because he was someone who had subdued a lot of the Afghan nation, if we can call it that. Remember, he never conquered Afghanistan. Remember, there's another key point here as well, which people forget is that we did not conquer Afghanistan. We did yeah, not. I, I, I just... I was always under the, the belief that he did. See, this is the fallacy which people... See, one thing uh, which I don't like is when Sikhs have to go above and beyond to boost their egos and then to start you know, beating their chest to say, we've done this, we've done that. We don't need to do that. The key principle of what I mentioned was Hari Singh Nalwa closed off that particular border. He didn't go past the Adak, and there's no need at that particular time to get a full-fledged full fight with the Afghans. However, on his death, what happened was Ranjit Singh was incensed. The whole Sikh empire was incensed, and they were ready to cross over into Afghanistan to take that revenge. It was the British who stopped them, because they were again doing their political power plays, they're more concerned about Russia and all this kind of things going on. Mm -hmm. So they stopped Ranjit Singh from actually fighting against uh, the Afghans. And what the British wanted to do was to install a puppet government there. So what, you, what the British do is they actually ask for Sikh support. Now, this is the interesting bit. Ask for Sikh support. So what happens is they actually, the Sikhs send a nominal force, which are composed of Muslims only, not Sikhs, of Muslims from the Sikh empire under um, um, General Bossawan, his name was. He was trained under the French generals. He takes the Khalsa standard. And when with the British, um, they take over Kabul, the Sikh Janda, which um, General Bossawan has, is hoisted for the first time. And it's a Muslim who actually hoists the Khalsa standard there, not a Sikh. So, so these, these are kind of intricacies which we don't never learn about or the rhetoric is very powerful, but the reality is something different. But like I said, that doesn't take anything away from 
the fact that um, Harrison Nalwa did something really, really great. The Afghan thing is a so, total different situation. But again, I go into it in the book as well. In fact, the longest footnote is related to uh, General Busawan itself. That's amazing. That sounds like a film in itself, That the, the plot line just there and then. And I think you, when you've got your story, the way you've narrated it out, it's just amazing how nobody sort of picked this up yet. So, very little, very little. It's just that rhetoric carries on. You try and correct people, and then it's like it just gets lost on people. But uh, so, so I'm, come, I'm going to come um, come to the last sort of couple of questions, really, and then um, and then sort of get your opinion on a couple of other things. So what would you then again going back to that macro level? What we first discussed on what would what would you seek as the main differences between the the missile period and the Sikh Empire period in general? Yeah, I think. Um, the Sikh empire was more coordinated, had better governance, and was more stable because it was under one leader. Whilst we did have a one leader under um, Jassa Singh Alawali, remember he passed away in 1783. And whilst there was Buddha leaders as well, there was still a lot of individuals being doing their own thing, if that makes sense. And the border of the Punjab wasn't quite closed so you know we still had the afghans coming in and the sikhs were actually fighting all the way up to avad so there's a lot of territory but not enough men to cover all those areas and there's too much of this hit strike and then retreat if that makes sense so you go for a plunder you get yeah. your taxation you get a raki yeah which is a taxation system which the sikhs operated in 18 the 18th century but there was a, still a little bit of a disorder, if that makes sense. It was a great, it was a great system whilst it was there, but then it was a, but then the as the older missile leaders got older and older and older, who was going to replace them? And that's why Ranjit Singh had that vision, and he'd actually seen the the greatness of the seat missiles, but also the negative qualities of the missiles as well. So to unite under one leader was his goal to ensure that the Punjab came together. So that, I mean, both had their benefits, but both had their disadvantages as well. But I think with the research I'm doing on the Sikh missiles, it may come up with a lot more information in terms of the governance system, which we don't know about as much as we do say, say with, the, with, the, with the Sikh empire. Wow. There's just, there's just so many different different angles to, uh, to go on there. And I think it's really important to, where you've kind of, shown the the research and the structure in the book is that you've included quite heavily some detailed ma uh, maps on the Anglo-Sikh maps uh, sorry the Anglo-Sikh maps including the book why is this so important and why is it so unique well I think um when I was looking at um, the annual seat wars, and you know, again, you know, there's been many books written on the annual seat wars over the years. Um, there's a lot of testimony from the British as well. But what I want to do is specifically put down the seat positions. I mean, many books have maps in there, but they very rarely actually put down the, where the seat commander was in those yeah. maps. And it sometimes was labeled as seat or be infantry or be artillery, but what about <laughs> yeah. their names? Who was actually there? And therefore, by unpicking the history of the anglo Sikh Wars, I mean, you know, I've been working on the anglo Sikh Wars. We did the first exhibition in Leicester, um, you know, 2017 um, period, where 
we were able to get relics from you know all over England for that exhibition. So I've been heavily involved uh, with actually understanding the Anglo Sikh War. So therefore, when I see something which isn't really talked about, I really wanted to get down to the bottom of the Anglo Sikh Wars in terms of giving a fair assessment of the wars within the book. And hopefully I've done that, but that couldn't be done without actually having clarity on the maps that were included where the Sikh positions were, because that really helps the reader understand um, you know, where the Sikhs were and where we'd taken loss and where we'd had the advantage. Because when it comes to military tactics, we should, we should learn from these for the future because that, that it actually gives us some great lessons as how we could have won in some of these battles, if that makes sense. And it's interesting because it wasn't necessarily that the British were superior, even they had bad tactics as well. So these maps actually show you how, so I think um, it's in one of the battles where the Sikhs and the British are actually, um, uh, there's like some big bushes, if you can call it that, there's a range of bushes and they both sides don't realize how close they were to each other. And if they'd known, then there would have been a different encounter and things like that. It's just these little things which uh, on the face of it makes a big difference. And also like um, finding out whilst you're doing the research on this is that, um, that the British did a lot of friendly fire as well. Because, you know, the problem was that during the anglo Sikh Wars, you've got to remember, we talk about the Europeanization of the Sikhs. So they were very close, which were very, very similar to the British. So, <laughs> so if someone turns their back on you, who would you fight? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, oh man, there's this. I mean, and that is a common thing in, in warfare, is it anyway? Around sort of friendly fire, but I think what you around the strategy and the other thing, I always find you know fascinating and stuff. And especially even when you watch kind of programs now, you got low, even fantasy, you got loads. And when, when it comes to kind of those the military strategic positions and um, when you see in the news and things happening right now you you see positioning and how people accommodate I mean now obviously it's modern warfare and it's yeah. completely different but interestingly, you... but, interestingly but interestingly um, we talk about modern warfare and I mean without without going too much into the modern day situation maybe Ukraine versus Russia but um, in terms of positioning it's still important Where's your position? Where's your main army? Where's your minor army? Do you have a certain strength anywhere? Key aspects of land? Are we talking about a mountainous area? Are we talking about flatland? All these components, are, have you got your back to the river? Which the Sikhs sometimes did in the Anglo-Sikh wars, which is a you know, disadvantage to them. All these factors are really, really important when it comes to actually strategy. So strategy is strategy, whether it's the past or in the future. I mean, if you're looking at warfare, uh, modern warfare, if you're looking at the most technical, then it's all drone warfare, if that makes sense. And that's not being used, as you can see, in this modern uh, battle between the Ukraine and Russia, as much as you think it would do. So it's not necessarily always about the technology. It is still that, um, that strategy which can win and lose a battle, even to this modern, in this modern day and, and age, really. And so, you know, kind of like leading on to the future in terms of like, you've come up to the up, up to this bit where, where do you see the next i'm going to say the next couple of books um i'm trying to lead you on to yeah. one or more <laughs> well i mean it's quite clear um from the discussion already and uh, i've been i've actually started on the seat missiles book already if that makes sense so how that pans out or which way it's going to turn, I'm not sure at this stage. It could be two volumes as well, don't know at this stage. So that's um, in preparation. 
Um, I am definitely going to do one on seat relics and artifacts. Whilst I've been talking about it for many years, uh, <laughs> you know, I've been talking about it and we've done lots of projects. I mean, we've got the Anglo Sikh Virtual Museum, which is the first digital museum in the world, which is, um, you know, revolves around digitizing Sikh objects, but an actual in depth guide of how the artifacts came to, from Punjab to England has never been written to this particular day. So I think that's on the cards as well. Um, you know, there's a few other bits as well, which could come up to fruition. There's one or two books I've written, which have never been published. I don't go too much into that, but that's a possibility that could come up if that makes sense. So, you know, it's um, the next couple of years will probably be taken up with, with some of these themes essentially. And how far are we in there to getting that the bigger museum uh, idea that we had the plans written written out for? Well, I've I've never never had the plans to make a museum <laughs> in the UK because um, I've, I've always would love to. I've always said that, but yeah. the cost in order to make a seat museum in the UK is it would be eye watering to make it properly. If that mm. makes sense, yeah, yeah. The content is not an issue because normally. When it comes to projects, the contents issue, are you going to be able to get the Shasta? Are you going to be able to get the swords? Are you going to be able to get the Jarenas? Are you going to be able to get the great pieces of work of art? And for me, that would not be an issue because of myself tapped into the museum network in the UK, tapped into various uh, private collectors in the UK and abroad as well. It would just be this monetary thing which would always pose a problem until someone actually goes out and says we're buying this building and this is what we're going to do and until that happens that that we're still some way away from that if that makes sense the, within within the uk there's been a huge change in terms of the the, the monarchy as well um, does 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 it act as a reflective point for yourself personally when you see this that are you fascinated around the change and the you know the the pomp and the the procedure that you see around there um do you kind of look at when you've done your research that the, oh this reminds me of this time or you know you know what's what kind of reverberations would be happening at that time it, that's a really good question as well Ranjit and uh I don't look at um the passing of a king or queen um in the same light as most people would do, uh, look at it. I look at it in terms of what's the next stage going to be as well. So what does it lead into? I, I get your point about the pomp, the ceremony, but interestingly, look, you, the swords start coming out. <laughs> do you notice when, you know, when we talk about royalty, we talk about British royalty, the swords come out, but what are the Sikhs? The Sikhs are all about the swords. So, you know, you, people talk about differences, but that chivalry thing, about holding the sword has all been in all cultures since day one. Um, whether you're, you know, you're the British, you're Europeans, you're with the, you know, the Islamic armies, the Hindustanis, everyone has always dealt with and always had some kind of initiation, some kind of um, framework in relation to a sword. So if anything, when we look at a change of guard now in terms of the next king coming in, Keep your eyes out on the sword and how many times it's used and then go back in time and think about how many times the Sikhs used to use the sword. And the Sikhs would use the sword more often because in order to become a Khalsa, you have to be becoming the fold 
with the Khandit, the, the pole ceremony, which involved the double-edged sword. So interestingly, what you're seeing is going back to a time period, even in Britain, where the sword was considered to be, you know, that kind of, that idea that, you know, you do not have a ceremony without the sword. Everything revolves around the sword. So interestingly, that's the key takeout for me. I'm not really interested in terms of the, 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 the dying out of ideas of the Elizabethan. I mean, I've seen a lot of things over the internet. I'm not interested in any of that. All I'm interested is in like seeing, do we actually get a change for the betterment of people as well? Yeah, how, how do we see a change in society? Um, hopefully we will. And for me, it's those kind of ideas which interest me more than if an idea or something is gone with colonialism and anything like that. Those kind of things don't interest me because the package of colonialism and someone dying isn't necessarily a full package and it's you've got a political system you've got a religious system you've got a you know royalist system it, these are different things they're not the same people always say that everyone's the same it's not necessarily all the same okay Narinda, we're coming towards the end now and, and you know what's coming where I, I give you a chance is there anything that else that we you want to kind of get off your chest this is the space for you to do so um, just one key thing uh, that we start, uh, started off with today was that um, I have been heavily involved in the, the creation of a Sikh memorial in Leicester. And it's taken a couple of years. And um, yeah, it's going to be something which is very unique to Leicester. And that's going to be installed in a couple of months time. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. It's something different compared with all the other projects I've done. Um, never done anything in terms of you know work project managing a statue so it's something different but nothing that's been beyond me it has been a lot of hard work and you know it just adds another kind of um string to the bow in terms of different seek projects because i always feel that um as a historian certain projects should be historian led and not people led if that makes sense people led I mean, you can get anyone to actually create a statue. You can create anyone to create a project, you know, even to write a book. But I always feel that a historian approach is my feeling should always be at the uppermost when it comes to seek projects. What's the historian's approach? Because then we can try and get an accurate uh, representation of something which is will be available for generations to come. And apart from that, the final thing I want to say is thank you to you, Rindeep. Always great to be on your podcast. And I do listen to some of the other podcasts you have as well. So keep up the good work. And yeah, no, absolutely. And maybe we'll have a chance to speak again. Tomorrow. Oh, 100% we will. Because I know, it, you know, when we touch a couple, uh, couple of months time, not a problem, especially with the statue. So yeah. guys, it's the rise of the Sikh soldier, the Sikh warrior through the ages. 1700 to 1900 and written by our very own Gurinder Singh Man. Gurinder, I just want to ask you one last thing. Can you do the audio book for this as well? Um, it's something I can look into, but it's the the, the way the books, uh, the publishers work is they all work differently. Yeah, way. yeah. So you may get a publisher which does a, a hardback or paperback, a ebook, and then you may get some who do audio books. The, but this publisher doesn't. That's not to say they may not do it in the future. 
But yeah, I mean, I've had a few people ask about that. Um, I personally don't listen to audiobooks, yeah. but that's not to say other people don't. Because I just think you've got such a great voice in terms of like how, how you convey the story. Um, and you've got to do a podcast of some sort. You need to start your own series and stuff as well, because well, it'd be brilliant. Well, maybe I can tap into your talents and maybe we could, maybe you can help me out. Yeah, don't follow me. I'll just tell you <laughs> so how we fluked it. But, right, um, no, but that's really appreciate it. Thanks for your thanks for your um, all the best, man. Thank you. Sasigali. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.